Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. It is Thursday, August 19th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior. On this episode, we're going to take a look at Al's recent article, which examined the Giants' bats. Yes, the Giants have been hitting a ton since the sticky stuff cracked down. So Al investigated some possible reasons for that uptick in production, which I found really interesting because this offense is really interesting. It's producing at a level that I think literally nobody expected them to. Maybe internally, they had some expectations that they could be this good as a team, but uh, they have surprised us at every turn in this season, and they're obviously legitimate contenders now that we're deep into August. Uh, from there, we're going to talk about some past calendar year leaderboard surprises. So digging in, looking at kind of the remnants of the end of last season, tacking that on to what we've seen so far here in 2021. Why would we do that? Well, mostly to kind of get a sense of guys who have overperformed and underperformed this year. What does it look like when you pull back and look at the bigger picture? Can you get a better sense for what a player's long-term value really is? Removing a little bit of recency bias, I think, is ultimately the goal there. Uh, how's it going for you on this Thursday, Al? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. It's uh, it's a rainy day here in Massachusetts, so a good day to be uh, you know sitting in and talking some baseball. Yeah, definitely, and uh, it's a weird low air quality day here in the Bay Area, which I'm, I'm not used to having to think about that as part of the weather. Like normally, my my weather forecasting is: look out the window, is it sunny? Go outside. <laughs> is it snowing? Stay inside. Like that's what I did for the better part of 36 years. Now I gotta actually check on air quality because it's a problem with all the fires and things happening uh, out this way. But uh, looks like it'll be a nice day here sooner rather than later. We tend to get a lot of those out in the Bay Area, I'm told. Let's uh, talk about a team in the Bay Area having a lot of nice days. Let's talk about the Giants. And uh, the piece you wrote for The Athletic it went up on Thursday morning, I believe. Time is uh, almost without meaning for me at this point. <laughs> yeah, it went up this morning. And you were looking at the production of the Giants' bats since the sticky stuff crackdown happened in early June. And I'm, I'm just curious, how did you even kind of stumble onto this as a topic to write about. Well, you chose the the exact correct verb that I stumbled into this topic because initially I was just looking to see um, from the hitter's perspective and and just uh, full disclosure here was an idea uh, that came from Nando Defino. So, you know, he had uh, put this to me that, you know, there's been lots of analysis on pitchers and how they've performed, you know, before and after. Uh, with the sticky stuff ban, but nobody, at least that I think he was aware of, and certainly not that I'm aware of, had looked on, on the hitting side. So I just started poking around and running some leaderboards. And so I, I started with four seam spin rate because, uh, of course, that's the most common pitch that that hitters are going to see. It typically accounts, you know, across the major leagues for about one out of every three pitches. And I did want to like zero in on. On four seamers, because I mean, I'm no expert in terms of how spin affects every different type of pitch, but uh, I would expect that it would deal with the sinking fastballs a little bit different. So I just focused on on the four seamers and then just pulled up uh, a leaderboard through June 2nd. And I used that date because I found a piece from Jeff Passan where he had used uh, that as a demarcator of um, June 3rd being the first day there were reports of the impending um, ban, which I thought was actually a smart way to do it instead of just you know using the actual day of the ban. So I used that same dividing line and did before and after and then ran them against each other. And I'm looking at the top of the leaderboards like, 
It's a giant. There's a giant. There's a giant. This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's where the idea for the piece came came from. So I was just yeah poking around through some data, really not knowing what I was going to find and not even knowing if it was going to produce a, a column at all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing you can start pulling on those threads and, and not find anything, I guess, conclusive enough or, or meaningful enough to, to even actually uh, put something together. So uh, as you kind of broke everything down, I, there's an interesting table near the top of this article where you're looking at just the, uh, the pitchers who the Giants have faced and the spin rate they have lost. Did, did you get the sense that maybe they had faced a greater number of spin rate Losers, I guess we'll call them the guys that were. Did they have like a disproportionate number of pitchers who were impacted by the the crackdown, or do you think this was actually just a pretty reasonable or normal uh, number of pitchers who were impacted this way? I, to me, it looked pretty normal. It, that table did not come out the way that I thought it would. <laughs> so I, you know, I put that together initially, thinking, well, this is going to be an interesting way to see how this happened with the Giants, because of course, when you you see, I think it was seven hitters in the top twenty-five in terms of the the magnitude of loss and spin rate. Uh, I thought, well, okay, you know, I would expect, well, gee, probably like. 10 of the top 10 or eight out of the top 10 are going to have like at least a hundred uh, RPMs loss in their, their four seamer spin rate. And instead uh, for those who haven't seen the piece yet, it's you've got three pitchers who uh, have faced the giants more than, than any, anybody else by far. And it's Merrill Kelly, Zach Gallen and Walker Bueller. So I, I was foreseeing that there was going to be some kind of NOS bias there. So those are the three that, um, had uh, have faced the Giants the most often. And I, I, when I say that, I mean in terms of facing the largest number of Giants batters. So I think they each made three starts uh, against the Giants since the uh, since the 3rd of June. And um, Kelly and Gallon really, really um, pretty big dips in their uh, four-seamer spin rate. Walker Bueller, uh, an even bigger one. He lost more than 200 RPM. Uh, and this is not just against the Giants. This is against everybody for those two time periods. And yet Bueller, kind of not surprising here at DVR, but uh, Bueller was still great, even with a lot less spin <laughs> against the Giants. So right away, that kind of threw a wrench into any kind of theory I was trying to put together here. But to kind of get back to the question, no, this I just this didn't um, really meet my expectations because as you go down the list, there's a bunch of pitchers who had much more modest decreases in spin rate. And I should point out too, that just about every pitcher has decreased in spin rate since uh, the 2nd of June, like across the major leagues is something like 10 out of 307 or 310, something like that have had even a small decrease. Everybody else has lost spin rate um, since that time. So as a part of that larger pool, this looked like a pretty normal, pretty normal group of pitchers. So it kind of left me scratching my head. Well, though, how come so many of these Giants hitters are seeing fastballs that are moving uh, at a lower rate of spin? I didn't really solve that riddle. Uh, you know, it could just be a bunch of pitchers that they faced, you know, one time or, you know, for a few innings. Uh, so it might be a lot of pitchers that didn't even show up on the radar uh, that all had really big decreases in spin rate. Um, I can only guess really at this point. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty odd. It could be a schedule related thing, I guess. I mean, you just never quite know. But I, I think this this kind of hints at something that 
we already know about the Giants, but we just don't know we don't know the exact how. So the, the Giants have a different approach to hitting. It's very clear. Like the hires they've made, the the mileage they're getting out of these players far exceeds what we expected. I, I'm wondering if they came up with a game plan that they're they're executing. They're attacking fastballs earlier in the count more often, right? Or, or what? Like, is there could there be something across the board that they, as an organization, decided to do when they knew this crackdown was going to happen? Did they have this conversation and say, "Oh yes, actually, we think fastballs are going to be a lot easier to hit, so we're going to look first pitch fastball more often. We're going to swing more in those counts." And we're going to be able to, you know, there's there's all sorts of things. There's all sorts of tactical sorts of adjustments they could make. Did you get the sense, the more you looked at this, that there was a broader tactical adjustment for the organization? Or did you, did you not really have any evidence to suggest that that's the case? I don't have the evidence to suggest that because I didn't go that far. That's, that's a fantastic idea for a follow-up column. Uh, so I really, I just got as far as seeing what the the magnitude was in the loss of spin rate for for their batters, um, you know, vis-a-vis all the other batters that that came up in the search. And then seeing how those batters uh, performed before and after. So now why, I mean, just to kind of skip ahead, almost all of the batters that were uh, up at the top of that leaderboard did a lot better (laughs) from uh, June 3rd on forward. And, what was a little bit surprising was they weren't hitting more barrels and they weren't at least across the board hitting for more power, but they were almost all, I think with one exception, they were almost all uh, making a lot more contact. And you would expect that, right? Because if you're seeing fastballs with less spin on it, I mean, that's long been associated with a lower whiff rate. So it, it totally makes sense. But like the, the differences were dramatic. I mean, for some of these hitters, it was like a five, six point uh, decrease in their K rate uh, since June third. It was it was pretty pretty impressive to see the changes in that regard. I think yeah, Alex Dickerson was the only player in the one table that had actually jumped in K rate, but Wilmer Flores was down. Donovan Solano was down. Brandon Crawford was way down. He was at twenty four point four percent for a strikeout rate through June second, and he's been at seventeen point six percent in the time since Brandon Belt brought his K rate down from 33.6% down to 27.5%. Uh, and, and even like the role guys, I mean, like Steven Duggar's on here, he's at AAA right now, but it, it that that's what made me think like this, this seems bigger than yeah. just the, Oh, Hey, this is happening. And it's, it's all a coincidence. It doesn't seem like a coincidence to me. Like there, there's, there's <laughs> probably a reason unknown to all of us and known only within small circles of the giants as to, how this actually played out this way. But yeah, what's interesting to me is you, you noticed that uh, a lower sp- lower rate of spin on four-seam fastballs is associated with fewer whips and more ground balls. And I think that might be part of the reason why the barrel rates don't necessarily pop the way you'd expect them to. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. So um, yeah, we're, we're you know not seeing that. But um, but yeah, the the strikeout rates really went exactly the direction you would, you would expect. And yeah, I think you're, you're really onto something the DVR because... We're both just kind of speculating here, but it does seem like you wouldn't see that improvement in strikeout rate across the board to such a great magnitude if this was just simply difference in spin rate. Like there, there might be some other kind of interacting variable in there. That would just be fascinating to to try to figure that out, or or actually, you know, talk to some folks and I don't know if they would tell you if you asked, but <laughs> it would be really cool to know. I think in, in the article you point out like in a lot of weekly leagues and in a lot of mixed leagues, because of 
the way the Giants distribute playing time, there's not a ton to be gained in a lot of leagues from seeing this. But at the same time, it's another reason to believe in the Giants and their ability to make hitters productive like for me. It's just one more mark in their favor in that regard, where, where I'd previously had a lot of doubts about Donovan Solano, and I didn't have a lot of interest in Evan Longoria and Brandon Belt and Brandon Crawford and these these old players that have really had just great years. I'm increasingly convinced that they they have something working there. And even if I don't know what it is, I can be more ag- aggressive in my pursuit of these players when they are available, when they are relevant, in a league. I mean, some, some of these guys, again, like Posey, long gone. Longoria was available in a lot of my mixed leagues this weekend. And I, if you told me back in March, you're going to be excited to pick up Evan Longoria in August when he comes back from an injury, I would have laughed. I said, well, no, no, there's no way. Why would I, why would I be excited about that? <laughs> and, and all of this just kind of fits into this organizational shift towards being one of the more impressive big league coaching staffs in the league. And I think it goes to pitching too. We don't have to get into the Giants pitching right now necessarily. It doesn't have to be a whole Giants podcast, but I didn't see them being nearly this good this year. I'm a believer now. They have convinced me over the course of the season. And people should check out this piece, by the way. It's just an awesome article that you wrote. Really cool idea. I'm glad Nando planted the seed and that you were able to to kind of act on it and, and put this together because uh, I think these types of things are, are fascinating. And I think you, you mentioned Walker Bueller. We should talk about him just for a second. I started looking ahead to 2022 just a little bit earlier this week with Eno on one of the episodes of Rates and Barrels. And with DeGrom hurt right now, Garrett Cole's been very good, but maybe not like peak Garrett Cole. The question kind of came back to us as, well, who's the first pitcher off the board in 2022? And it really seems like Bueller is probably that guy. And it's weird that he's been this good despite that significant drop in fastball spin rate. It is. And maybe there's something going on there on the Dodgers side where, you know, they saw what was coming down the pike and figured out a way to, to respond to it. So uh, another pitcher, by the way, a little bit further down this list, Madison Bumgarner, an enormous drop in spin rate. And that's not shocking at all because you look at what he's done since coming off the IL, which I think he was on the IL uh, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but I think he was on the IL when the band came down and he has been a different pitcher since coming back, but he's been a really good pitcher, but he's not, you know, it's all, ma- it's all contact management with Bumgarner. So was there some kind of foresight there in terms of how he's approaching pitching? So I realize I've diverged from Walker Bueller. I don't know what to make, make of it with Bueller. Um, I think I wrote about him maybe a month, month and a half ago being concerned that he wasn't missing as many bats, but you know, obviously, <laughs> obviously, there's no problem there, and and I think he is very much in that discussion for the first pitcher uh, off the board next year. Yeah, Bueller currently on track to have his best big league season in terms of ERA and WHIP. I don't know if he'll reach his 2019 strikeout total. That's going to be it's going to be close. He's going to need a really strong finish to get there. But man, look at his game log. I mean, he is he's gone at least six innings in each of his last seven starts rarely goes less than five. The last time Walker Bueller went less than five innings, it wasn't even this season. That's how good he has been throughout the year. So I think he's got a really strong case to be the first pitcher off the board, barring some really good news about Jacob deGrom in the next few weeks. I'm just not expecting it. I, I hope we get it, but I think we've seen enough to to know that this is probably going to a unfortunate uh, 
bad place uh, as it pertains to the health of, of DeGrom and his arm, given it's been stop, start, stop, start now, it seems like, for a couple of months. Um, but I want to take the the Giants' performance and this piece you wrote, Al, and then kind of take it over to the leaderboards, the past calendar year leaderboards over at Fangraphs, because this isn't new. Like The Giants exceeded our expectations last year. And just for an example, if you, if you put up a, a leaderboard of, uh, let's say, WOBA, and you want to do last calendar year leaders for uh, for Woba, you're going to find a whole bunch of giants on there, a whole bunch of them. Like it, it's it's kind of silly. Like in like Brandon Belt is, is like a top five player based on Woba over the past calendar year. Like I I don't know how to fully explain that, but <laughs> it's just one of those things that you look at it and you go, okay, I have to do something with this now. I have to accommodate completely different set of, of, of values on some of these players than I had, had anticipated. How do you rectify something that's such a, a massive outlier? Belt is at five. Posey is at eight. Darren Ruff is at 11. If you lower the threshold to 200 plate appearances, which that would, that's the most surprising one of all, given the arc of his career, I think, to this point. But he's just mashing as a part-time player. Do you do you start to pull back and look at this and go, this is more than just one year. This is not just good luck. This is not just one adjustment that they've made. This is a series of adjustments, and they've truly unlocked the best version of Brandon Belt. Maybe the guy that we thought he could be back at the time that he was a prospect. I mean, for me, the the biggest hurdle for Belt for his entire career has just been health. Like he's had injury after injury, and now that he's 33, he'll be 34 in April. It's going to be even more difficult for him to stay healthy you know, going forward. Well, I, yeah, I think that there's, there is something to what you're saying in terms of an organizational approach. That's probably uh, helping a lot of these hitters, but I also, I think part of that approach too, is just uh, having players in their roles using a lot of platoons. So you're not seeing Darren Ruff every day. You're just seeing him where he's likely to produce his best results. And same thing uh, that you often see with Wilmer Flores or um, Lamont Wade Jr., who I think is just really an interesting story this year. Uh, you know, probably one of the last people I would have expected to put up the numbers that he's put up. So there's obviously, there's something going on there that you have so many of these players putting up numbers that you didn't expect. But I, I do think that I, I, I'm hard pressed to think of another team that platoons as much as they do. I don't even think the Rays do. So um, I, I think that has a little something to do with it. Yeah, they're maximizing the value of, of the players they have by putting them in the best possible position to succeed. And, and maybe that does limit some of the appeal again in, in more shallow mixed leagues because the playing time count isn't going to be there. You got to be in a daily moves league to take full advantage of all the things that this team has been able to do. Uh, but when you pull back and you take a look at the past calendar year, we're going to focus on hitters in this episode. We'll probably do something similar with pitchers on an episode down the road. But Trey Turner leads all position players in war. And I'm kind of laughing as I look at that because the Nats apparently gave him a pretty low ball, long-term extension offer before trading him in a bundle with Max Scherzer to the Dodgers. I think they did okay in that trade. Not necessarily great based on the, the immediate returns, but we'll see if that plays out differently over time. But Trey Turner, I think, is one of the few players that I look at and can say confidently, yes, he is a 2022 first-rounder. It is an incredibly surpri- it's a surprisingly difficult exercise to go through, as we learned earlier in the week. We just tried to do top five that day. But part of the reason I think Turner is very clearly 
a top five player even going into next season, Alice, because he contributes across the board. He's been in this range for a long time. If you didn't have Trey Turner as a top five player in the past, you probably had him pretty clearly inside your top 10 on more than one occasion. And I think we're seeing a lot of guys kind of pushing their way toward elite status for the first time. And people have this tendency to stick to what they know and stick to the players they know and and kind of look for more of that floor in round one than going overboard pushing for the ceiling, right? I think there are some players out there who would say, going into this year, "Ah, I'm just not quite ready to buy into Tatis if I have the first overall pick. I just want to Mm -hmm. see a little more. Like Some people have that. If you have those concerns, at least you have that longer track record with Turner, who's now probably in the best situation of his entire career in terms of supporting cast. Not that he had a bad one during his time with the Nationals, but this Dodgers lineup that he's a part of now is absolutely loaded. So we could still see maybe the best season yet from Trey Turner coming up in 2022. Yeah, you you could. And uh, I don't know. I guess he could be in the top five. I mean, so much of what's happened with this year is just the players at the top having health issues, missing time. So uh, that's certainly, I think, going to affect where Tatis goes next year. Uh, I would think Acuna as well. Mike Trout, certainly. And I'm looking at this uh, WOBA leaderboard that you're referring to just a few minutes ago. So you've got Mike Trout up at the top. Acuna second, Juan Soto's third. And I have to say that surprises me a little bit because he had such a slow start this year. And yet even with that, you know, pretty extended period of time. And here's somebody who he missed a little bit of time, but, you know, hasn't had the same health issues that some of these other early picks uh, have had. So he was somebody that I thought could have been the number one player this year. I don't think I had a lot of company in, in that opinion. Uh, but I think that there's a stronger case for it next year, even with the slow start he had. Yeah, I'm with you. And he's got a 454 OBP in the past calendar year, which is just absurd. Uh, I think the supporting cast downgrade around him might be a, a small knock against him. But in terms of his actual skills, he does everything that we care about. He even runs a bit. He's got 11 steals over the past calendar year. So he's not a zero in that category. And I think this is this is why I wanted to pull back and look at it this way. Juan Soto versus Vlad Jr. If you're thinking about it in this moment, the snap answer is probably well, Vlad Jr. in 2022, right? He's, he's having the better year. And if you pull back a little bit and look at the past calendar year, the numbers still favor Vlad Jr. because he's got 15 more home runs. And he has played in 15 more games, but that's, that's not a, a per-game thing. That's a... Vlad Jr. has just played a little better than Soto over the past calendar year. I look at Soto and say there's no reason why he can't match Vlad Jr. And Soto is a reason for me not to take Vlad Jr. in the top three or maybe even in the top five if I have a really early pick or if I'm building a team in an auction, right? I'm thinking about future auctions and Vlad Jr. is going to cost 45 or 50 bucks and Soto is going to go for 40 or 42. I'll take that discount because I don't think there's that much of a difference between those two players as hitters. And I think you actually get that extra little lift in the stolen base category from Soto. Um, But I just think recency bias is so strong year to year in drafts that as great as Vlad Jr. is, and this is not me poo-pooing him at all, it's more saying don't forget how amazing Juan Soto is when you get down to the draft table in 2022. Yeah, if if uh, there is a relative discount for Juan Soto, I'm taking that ten drafts out of ten for sure. Yeah, I think uh, I think you'd be very wise to do that. Let's talk about Cedric Mullins though for a second, Al. He is 
amazing. If you look at the past calendar year, he's almost a top 10 player in war. In fact, he's actually 0.1 wins behind Devers for the last spot. So I think you could kind of just say he is a top 10 player at this point in terms of his real life value. There's power, there's speed. The past calendar year numbers stack up really well with other great fantasy players. The only thing here, probably not going to drive in a lot of runs in part because of you know where he hits in that lineup and the quality of that lineup. So the team context is the biggest issue. But where do you think Mullins might be going in 2022 drafts? Like if you were thinking about the Mason mocks and eventually the early NFBC draft champions leagues, is Mullins going to be a possible late first rounder? I'd be surprised if he's not. Um, you talk about recency bias. <laughs> I think that's going to carry him into the first round. And yeah, I think, yeah, you'll, I think we're looking at 10th, 11th, 12th, most likely, and probably well-deserved. I mean, there's been real skills growth, uh, in the past year. Uh, he's not an elite barrel hitter, but he's in a park where I think that the improvement that he has had has gotten magnified. And the Orioles offense being what it is, I do think he's he's still going to score his runs. So that's going to at least make up a little bit for the deficiency in RBIs and speed power threats uh, are, are certainly going to get weighted a little more heavily uh, early in the draft. And I think Mullins is legitimately one of those now. Yeah. And I think you'll notice if you sort just by steals on a leaderboard like this, it's harder and harder to find 30 plus steal guys. I think, 20 steals might be the previous cutoff for 30. If you played fantasy baseball 10 years ago, you were looking for 30 steal guys atop your roster. 20 steal guys might be the core of a good fantasy roster at this point. Mullins is fifth in steals over the past calendar year. Only Whit Merrifield, Starling Marte, Trey Turner, and Tatis have more steals than him. And I think with Mullins, I think because that team will still be bad, I think they will have every incentive to continue letting him run because just manufacturing runs is something they're going to need to do. They're going to have to outscore their rebuilding pitching. I know they got some good young pitching prospects coming up, but I think bad teams continually show us that they're much more willing to give never-ending green lights to players. And that gives me that, that added optimism that this is a part of Mullen's game that will not be going away anytime soon. That's a really great point. And something that I really have not appreciated enough before this year and then really noticing, and I, I'm, I'm kind of blanking on the... Uh, the specific examples of it, but noticing players who, yeah, when their teams get better or they go to better teams, that those steals dry up a bit. So uh, I think that's that's a great point. Among the other players that really surprised me on just the overall like war leaderboard, Jake Cronenworth. Like I flat out missed on Cronenworth. I think I have him on one team. And it's only because I have a co-manager who talked me into the pick and said, I really like Cronenworth here. Let's take him. And I said, oh, okay, I guess... He's versatile, and he'll probably play enough, and it, he's been one of the Padres' best players. I mean, for a year where the Padres have had a few things uh, go sideways, Jake Cronenworth has been even better than I expected for sure. Uh, did, did I miss on Cronenworth, or did everyone miss on Cronenworth, though? Because it was playing time concerns, and I think it was also a concern that there wasn't necessarily going to be enough power there for him to be a shallow mixed league difference maker like if he was four to five times a week in the lineup and a 15 homer guy over the course of the season that's okay that plays but you could probably do better in a 10 team league or even in a 12 team league so where did I go wrong with Cronenworth well I don't know that you did I I had the same perceptions yeah I don't know if everybody missed on him 
But I definitely remember going into drafts, like 12 team drafts, wondering if it was really even worth it. Was he going to be a regular player? How much was he going to play? And I definitely did not buy into the power at all for Cronenworth. And really, up until fairly recently, the the power numbers for 2021 were not overwhelming. He's gone on a bit of a binge of late. So to some extent, I'm not sure that I that I'm even buying into the numbers that he's put over put up over the last calendar year because they've been sort of lumpy. He's gone long periods without producing a lot of power and it seems like it should be a long enough period where you figure that the hot and cold streaks are going to bounce each other out but I I'm still not totally confident uh, about exactly what type of player Cronenworth is. What I do know is that the playing time obviously is going to be on question now and he is like you say he's one of their best players. So even if he's you know, let's say like a 15 homer guy um, that he's going to be hitting in a spot in that order and having enough good hitters around him that he's going to produce runs. He's going to hit for average. Uh, and the the sum of all that, it, it might be, you know, the, the least sexy way to do it possible, but the sum of what he, he does is going to make him, uh, you know, viable in, in every format. I wonder if he's Jeff McNeil with a little bit less hit tool, but a little more power. So you get 282, 90 and 18 to 22 instead of McNeil, like 310 most years. I realize McNeil's down and Mets fans are, are furious about that. But I, I, that kind of player, a guy that plays all over, yeah. maybe carries a top 75 ADP at the Inflated cost, I may have to miss out yet again on Cronenworth, but I don't think moving him up the board considerably is unwarranted based on what we've seen. This is real. He's been more than 20% better than a league average hitter since showing up and a lot more consistent than I would have expected to. I was waiting for that that big drop, that big adjustment phase to happen. I think that was my general fear going into the season was anybody who debuted in 2020 or who didn't have a long track record prior to 2020, they didn't have enough time for the league to necessarily figure them out in a 60-game season, and I thought we would see a lot of harsh regression for players that came up, thrived all year in the shortened season, and then finally had to go through that adjustment phase here in a full 162. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think that was you know a, a legitimate concern that many of us had, and uh, you know, so a lot of things are getting clarified now with uh, a regular length season. Let's talk about some power uh, leaders here. Just looking straight up at the home run leaderboard over the past calendar year, it should come as little surprise that Shohei Otani is among the players with 40 or more home runs during that span since he's uh, you know got 40 in this season. 43, though, for Otani. Vlad Jr. at 41, Tatis at 40, and then Jose Abreu at 40. And I think Abreu is another guy that I looked at coming into the year and said, hey, we've seen the absolute best of Abreu on a per-game basis. Yes, that White Sox lineup is better, but he's 34 now. There's just no way that the increased rate of home runs that we saw in 2020 is going to hang around. And I know he's kind of fallen back closer to the typical low 30s home run pace that he's been on, but I, I think... What I'm looking at with Abreu is this possibility that maybe he does actually have one more really good season still in his bat. Like the longer track record, the, the past calendar year leaderboard makes me just a little more optimistic about Abreu in 2022 than I would be otherwise. Yeah, I, I feel the same way too. And and plus just first base is just not what it used to be. So I think if you're going to you know take a risk on him, he's at a position where it, it kind of makes some sense because 
you know, if he's he's off the board, I think it's a point in the draft where you you really have to be a little bit fearful about what what's still going to be out there when you come back around to try to fill that first base spot. Yeah, you look at the barrel rate, it's double digits for the third consecutive year, 11.1%, down from where it was in the shortened season, 14.3%. Very hard to sustain that. Probably a peak for him, but I think 2019 is still within reach. So if you're disappointed by the Abreu, you know, 255 batting average so far this season, I'd be stunned if he hit for an average that low over a full season in 2022. The power is still legit. And of course, top to bottom, that White Sox lineup, really in a good place right now plus healthier possibly next year for some of those guys around him right i mean yeah luis robert healthy all year andrew vaughn in year two eloy jimenez being out there like all of those things actually help abreu as well and i think because of his age and because of that downturn in average people might be a little bit skeptical of him a little bit down on him relatively speaking going into the next season i am not going to be among them uh, sal perez by the way, hasn't have hasn't popped 40 home runs in the past calendar year, but he's got 37. And I would say I was among the people that was definitely not interested in Perez at his 2021 ADP. And I'm not sure what to do with him going forward. A great season for him so far. He's already singing a career high 30 home runs here in 2021. And perhaps most surprising for me, Al, a 275 batting average. I just I never thought we'd see that over a near full season's worth of plate appearances from Sal Perez. Well, I, I thought that like when he was a rookie or maybe in the second year when he was a completely different hitter and didn't strike out that much. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm looking at the last calendar year for Perez and uh 27% strikeout rate. So, you know, if you go back to early in his career, that would have been kind of shocking, but you know, again, so with those 37 home runs, so I'm with you. I, I didn't uh, foresee this kind of season from Perez this year. And at this point, I I think he's got to be the top catcher off the board. And, you know, so when you say you're not sure what to do with him going into next year, I mean, there was always in any draft I've been in in recent years or maybe any year, there's always that hesitation to be the one who takes the first catcher. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, if if I'm ready to, to do that, if I'm ready to take a catcher, it's going to be Perez over Real Muto next year. That's interesting because like I... I'm more worried about age with a catcher than I am at other positions. I mean, obviously, like Buster Posey's having an amazing season here. Um, and I think part of it with Posey, a year off may have done him some good given the, the physical wear and tear you take at that position. I don't know if I could go Perez over Real Mudo. I mean, I think Philly's such a great place to hit. I still have quite a bit more faith in the Phillies lineup than the Royals lineup overall. But I, I was wrong for doubting Perez this time. Maybe I'll be wrong if I'm doubting him again. If, if that's the price, though, if he's going where the first catcher typically goes, fringy like for the top 50 overall, I don't think I can commit a pick quite that early to him, even with the, the great season that he's put together. Well, and again, given that the first catcher always goes kind of late, I don't know that he's going to be uh, somebody who's going so early that it's it's going to feel too early for me. But... <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, you know, there's there's uh, you know, it's it's an evergreen statement, but uh, you know, it's it's a it's a position I'm not going to be excited about filling next year. Let's flip it over to the negative side just for a few minutes here. Uh, Eugenio Suarez is among the biggest disappointments for me of this season. I I thought he'd bounce back at least to the not to the 2019 level, but I I thought maybe the 
2017 season we saw from him was probably his floor. You know, 260 average, 26 homers that year, uh, over 80 RBIs and over 80 runs scored with room for more because the Reds lineup was good. And the power's still there. He's got 38 home runs over the past two seasons combined now. But the K rate has been up ever since that 49 home run season that he put together in 2019. Yes, the year of the rabbit ball and in Cincinnati. And a lot of that production, if I remember correctly, came in the second half of the season after a bit of a a slow start in the first half. Maybe that K rate that year, a 5% increase in strikeouts, maybe that was a warning sign for us that that was the peak and that the end wasn't as far away as we thought. I I really expected a a softer long-term trajectory from Eugenio Suarez based on those earlier career K rates. And maybe I ran right through the fact that he followed it up in the shortened season with a 29% K rate, right? I mean, if you do the same thing we're doing right now, kind of looking at a calendar year or mushing two seasons together, you'd have a long track record of a lot of swing and miss. And for a guy like that, that's it's going to be very difficult to hit for a high average because he's not going to run particularly well. He could be vulnerable to pulling the ball too much. And those types of players in today's game tend to fall off cliffs. They do, and yet I'm kind of encouraged to to hear you kind of you know run down the um, you know the profile for him in the last couple of years because uh, I think that that's probably how most people are going to look at Suarez going into next year, and the, I could see really picking him up late in a lot of leagues because I've been really sort of puzzled by him all season long. Like you said, the power has been there all along. Uh, if we do look at the last calendar year, he's driven in 97 runs. So, yeah, I mean, the big problem is obviously that he's uh, hit 188. Uh, the strikeout rate is not great, but he's hit 204 on balls in play. And I just, every couple of weeks, I come back to his profile and think, okay, has something changed here? Can I understand this? And I don't, yeah, he does pull a lot of balls. He he, he does hit maybe, uh, you know, too many flies to really hit for a good average. But I don't, I don't see anything there that looks like a lasting problem in terms of, raising that batting average significantly. He doesn't, doesn't pop up a lot. You know, I, I, it just doesn't make sense. I just wonder, like, I know uh, traditionally people have always said that a right-handed hitter is less likely to be shifted against than a lefty. I don't think that's necessarily true in today's game. I think everyone gets shifted mm-hmm. based on where they hit the ball. So I feel like that's kind of out the window. He's pulled the ball more than 50% of the time every year since having that extra home run lift in 2019. It's a, heavy pull rate and I think as a result of that that has changed where the batting average ceiling is for him considerably I guess the question would be can he go back to the approach he was using 2018 2017 can he can he actually do that can he make that adjustment is that something you can do as a hitter at this phase of his career it seems like he almost has to in order to avoid becoming a guy that kind of gets pushed into the back burner with a a, it's a long-term contract but Nine million a year is not going to mess up the Reds if they're not playing Suarez every day. I, I think he he has added could lose his job to the range of outcomes faster than I expected. I'm sorry, I was just going to say that's the concern I have more than the skills because they do have a more crowded infield. We'll see what happens with uh, Jose Barrero. Jonathan India is amazing. We talked a lot about him on the Athletic Baseball Show uh, for Friday, which is you know he, top to bottom like this. This is a good lineup. Votto's Renaissance. They're really well set behind the plate with Barnhart and Tyler Stevenson. The outfield looks really solid with Castellanos and, and Winker, and maybe they get something out of Senzel 
when he's healthy. Um, but I guess it all comes back to price. All, all of these players, when you're talking about 2022, you think about where players are going to go in drafts. If Eugenio Suarez falls outside of the top 200 in terms of his ADP, which I think is very possible, mm-hmm. I'll be interested. I'll, I'll at least consider it depending on the type of team that I'm building because we've seen low average, big power guys, even without a big change in approach, sort of bat up their way to a 230 sort of season. And if he's still got that 35 plus home run power, which I think he does, 230, 335, 90, 90 is a great value outside of the top 200, even if you have to have that added could lose his job risk. And and again, he could erase that in the first two months of the season if he comes back with that different approach. But I honestly don't know if on the wrong side of 30, if we should expect a player to change his approach, but there's proof he can do it. Like, And I think that's encouraging. Yeah, and... You know, I think too. You know, we don't need to assume uh, that, and we probably shouldn't assume that he's going to change his approach. If we just get the player that we've seen for the last calendar year, I did a uh, did a column probably about a month and a half ago or so, maybe a little bit longer, where I looked at players who hitters who had been disappointed this year, and I looked at their roto value, and I fully expected Suarez to be like way underwater, like seven or eight dollars, you know, under. <laughs> under uh, zero uh, in, in 12 team leagues. He actually was, was in the black, uh, I think at around three or $4 of value with pretty much this type of skill profile and, and this type of performance profile. So I think it only gets better. Maybe it doesn't get a lot better, but this version of Eugenio Suarez is worth a late round pick in 12 teamers and maybe then some. Right. And I think at that price, he's, easily cuttable if you don't like what you see next year if you yeah. feel like oh, this is more of the same and he's even lost a little power or the average is still bad okay you can cut him loose because you're not building around him as an early round uh, key piece of your roster it'll be a lot easier to part ways with him so I, I just think he's fascinating because again players fall off cliffs sometimes I didn't think he was going to be one of them and it's probably because I overlooked the continually high K rate during the shortened season, maybe gave him too much of a pass and expected too much in terms of a bounce back from him. Um, as I mentioned earlier, speed hard to find. Uh, I mentioned the guys that over 40, only two Whit Merrifield and Starling Marte over the past calendar year. Some of the other guys that are over 25, I think are good reminders of how quickly these players can lose their hold on playing time. Rymel Tapia and Dylan Moore, among the other players, over 25 steals. That group also includes Tatis and Mullins and, and Trevor Story. But Rymel Tapia and Dylan Moore, I, I'm not in on Tapia at all. I, I never have been. And I know he's a Nando guy, and it's the year of the Nando, as we've joked many times before. So maybe that's part of the reason why everything's kind of falling into place. But a 288 hitter in in that ballpark is, you know, shrug. Like you, that's what you should do in in Colorado. Only five homers. I guess my my concern with Tapia is that he doesn't necessarily pair any other standout skill with his speed. You can count the average and, and contact ability. I guess as a skill. I'm just not sure that's enough. I, I have I have legitimate playing time concerns about him, even in Colorado, because I think that's a team that's going to go through a lot of changes and rightfully so this winter. So. I could see being encouraged by him because he struck out less than ever this season. That matters. Getting down to a 13.9% K rate, that's a big deal. But I don't think we're ever really going to get power. And I think when you're flirting with a sub-100 ISO, you run the risk as a speedster of having things fall apart. It's something Eno and I were discussing on Rates and Barrels this week. It's kind of part of the rubric of risky speedsters for me now. And Tapia, unfortunately, ticks that box. 
Yeah, in a different organization, I think I would be even more worried. And, uh, you know, I just don't know if uh, Tapia is going to necessarily lose a lot of playing time next year, even if he probably should. <laughs> so uh, it's going to be an interesting one to watch next spring and see how that, that Rockies roster shapes out. Because, you know, you could say that that skill set doesn't play other places and that, you know, you should just show up and hit 280. But the the fact is that he has been given the opportunity to show up in that lineup every day and do just that. And that's had value along with the steals. So role is going to be critically important for him and, and obviously anybody else on that roster next year. Yeah, I think as I try and imagine how I'm going to build a lot of my rosters for next season, I think one thing I'm going to push even further into is trying to avoid chasing the guys who provide so much of their value in that one category, in the stolen base category. I want to have more balanced players. I want to have several guys who get 10 to 15 bags as opposed to you know one or two guys that might get me 25 plus, um, especially when they come with the the possible downside. I mean, Dylan Moore, fortunately for me, was just a guy that I, I saw enough of the flaws and I thought the price got high enough where it made it kind of an easy decision. It doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes you you have a player that you you're not convinced that they're necessarily going to repeat or even come close to repeating within the previous season and the price stays pretty low and you're forced to make that choice. In Dylan Moore's case, his ADP got so high, I had no interest in him in 2021. So that was an easy player for me to sidestep. So fortunately, I didn't absorb the uh, disappointment of Dylan Moore here in 2021. But I think he's just a good reminder of What's working right now might not work later. And it's not always a speedster that we're referring to. Like Adelise Garcia might be kind of the, this year's version of Dylan Moore, a guy that looked really good for a stretch of about three months. On paper, it looks solid. You flash forward ahead to the next season, and all of a sudden, he's not even playing every day because things have gotten so bad and he's unable to make the necessary adjustments to stay in the lineup. Yeah. And I mean, we're fortunate in that he's, you know, he had that uh, hot streak early on. And so we've gotten to see an extended period with Garcia where he's really done nothing but provide some power. So, uh, you know, even the steals have dried up for him. So I'd be really surprised to see people chasing after him unless he really finishes strong. I'd be very surprised to see that next spring. It's a fun story while it lasted, though. And yeah, I'd, I'd be OK with a, a late season surge for him to make things uh, a bit more interesting. But uh, looking at some of the guys that I would be absolutely trying to build around. I'm talking about guys like Ozzy Albies and Bo Bichette's probably going to be a first rounder, so that's not necessarily an easy get. Um, but I'm looking for Trent Grisham, right? Past calendar year, 19 homers, 16 steals, hitting 260, really good categorical balance. I want more and more guys like that in the early round than even a Starling Marte, who I liked at the price going into 2021. I, I don't want to put so many eggs in one basket as I'm looking for those steals because I'm seeing the leagues where. I'm lagging in steals, and if I weren't, if I were doing better in that category in most cases, I'd be in a position to, to cash or possibly win the league. And I, I find that to be uh, a, a silly category to not do well in because I don't think it's that hard to identify the players that will actually steal bases. It's just a matter of, of making it a priority to get enough of them and to maybe balance out the roster in a way where if one guy goes down, you're still competitive in that category. Well, the, the problem is, of course, that a lot of people in our community have the same idea. And you know, Trent Grisham, I, as far as I remember it going into this year, was really, you know, pretty, pretty well thought of. 
So uh, it's just a question of kind of not making, and this is where I often mess it up is, you know, not making bad picks in like the, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth rounds, um, you know, where you could add another balanced player onto your roster who might not be as flashy or, you know, might not be as good in steals or might not provide as much power as somebody that you're thinking of taking at that point. But, um, you know, I think that's a critical part of the draft and probably where, you know, we should just be very consistent and look for balanced players. Yeah, last guy kind of fits this. It's a perfect way to end this show, I think. Chris Taylor, right? I mean, his past calendar year, 24 homers, 12 steals, 277 average, 366 OBP, plays all over. You get power, you get enough speed, you get a good average, and of course, you get good counting stats too because of the supporting cast that he gets to play in. I can't believe how cheap he was in 2021, and I'm certain that's not going to repeat in 2022. He will be more expensive and it'll be probably more like a fringy top 100 situation for Chris Taylor. And it's going to make it a more difficult call. There's going to be some teams where I probably have to go ahead and, and take that chance. And there's going to be some teams where I talk myself out of it and end up with, you know, Victor Robles 150 picks later. And uh, I can't I can't even imagine how many times I talk myself into that on draft day. Please, if, if you <laughs> speak to future me, tell me that's a bad idea because a guy like Chris Taylor, it's so much better, so many more ways he could make value. If he stops running, he still hits for power, right? If he plays a little less, he's still playing enough. Like there, there's just there's so much to like about that profile, and I, I feel like I, I should have him everywhere. And I think I have him in one league, which is just embarrassing. I think I've got him in one league too, and I think it was a pickup like in May when he was still on waivers. So uh, yeah, that probably is going to happen next year. Don't you think that might have been because of what people were projecting for Gavin Lux, which is not going to be something that is going to happen in 2022? Oh yeah, that's definitely something I was projecting for for Gavin Lux. Like I I thought Lux was going to be this year's Kyle Tucker. You can add that to the. Victor Robles Hall of Things DVR was wrong about this year. I thought Gavin Lux was going to be a monster. Like I, I don't think I was alone in that. I think I was a little more on an island with Robles, at least initially, and then the ADP jumped late in the year. So there were people out there jumping on board the Robles train at some point. But the Gavin Lux situation, that was absolutely part of why Chris Taylor wasn't a priority for Mix. I thought the playing time was going to shift in a way where Lux was going to be a priority guy, and Taylor might go the way of someone like a Jake Cronenworth, right? I got both of those versatile guys. I got flat out wrong in terms of their playing time. And I'm wondering if that's a little bit of a blind spot that has to be corrected for the future. It's easy to, you know, make that correction looking back in August. Um, really, really hard to do on draft day. Yeah, I just hate making the same mistakes over and over again, even though I, despite my efforts to not make the same mistakes over and over again, still do it anyway. But uh Al, this was a lot of fun. Always good chatting with you. And uh, we, we got another pod coming up this weekend. We got the waiver show coming up on Sunday. Uh, if you don't follow Al on Twitter, please follow him at Al BB. I'm at Derek Van Riper. It's cool if you follow me. It's cool if you don't. I really don't mind either way. If you like what you hear, leave us a nice rating and review. We'd greatly appreciate that. And if you want to read all the content on The Athletic, you can get 30% off at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. That includes the article that we talked about that Al wrote about the Giants since the sticky stuff cracked down that includes the next week in fantasy baseball, all of the stuff we do for fantasy baseball and fantasy football is here too. So if you're into the Jake Seeley content, obviously we got a lot of that whole crew of fantasy football writers back on board this year as well. So be sure to check all that out for El Melchior. I'm Derek Van Riper. Thanks for listening. We're back with you on Sunday. Mm-hmm.